I love this. At the primary school, instead of having a bell, they just play some cool music. It's like, it's time to go to school. Yeah. Go to class. Makes it seem like it's going to be fun. And maybe it will. All right. New Garage Band file. Tuesday morning, 15th of August. I've asked you to write a bit of music to take us out or to use somewhere within this episode and I sent him the poem and he just texted me saying the more I read this poem the more it feels grim (laughs) grim I don't know about that that's not the word I would use so yeah part one went up this morning and I don't know. I have no idea how it's going to land. I always feel this way. Just trust the process. That's all I can do. What I'm realizing as I'm looking at the text is that it's not its not the kind of poem, it's not like Speed of Pastoral that kind of you can look at line by line. I really need to start looking at it in terms of like phrases or movements in the poem. So I'm going to go back to the start and and try to do that over the next few days. We were never married, Dido. Cease weeping, let me leave, and agree we both knew real spouses. It's so direct, and I'm thinking about the way that Andrea read this. It was so factual, so matter-of-fact. She was much less dramatic than me. Cease weeping, let me leave and agree. We both knew real spouses. Like this is, this is not the huge dramatic thing that you are making it out to be. But she is weeping and it is harsh to say to somebody, would you stop crying? There's no getting away from that. Even as the ghost of my precious wife passed through my clutching arms like mist, I swear on my soul I could taste her. It gets even more harsh there, I think, because Aeneas's wife is his precious wife and his arms are clutching for her and then he's talking about tasting her to Dido, who at this point is, we can assume, still crying. It's rough. But then, as we kind of talked about before, like, Aeneas is grieving. Aeneas's heart is not really with Dido. And whether we think about that in terms of divine intervention or just in very matter-of-fact terms of, you know, human-mortal relationships, that's the reality of the situation. He is not... He's nowhere near as committed to Dido as he was to his wife. And that's just the fact of it. Is that grim... Is it harsh? Or is it just how it is? Okay, (laughs) I snuck into an empty meeting room. I'm here at work and I just, I don't know. I don't, I I feel completely crazy. Um, But I hope, but my But I think doing this will help me to feel a little bit less insane. I got this beautiful message from Stu last night. I asked him to write a song 
for the episode and I sent him the poem and I really wasn't expecting his response. It was so, it's really interesting. A, a couple of different people that I've spoken to so far are really interested more in Dido's perspective than they are in Aeneas's perspective. And yeah, this is what he had to say. So I just read over this poem, maybe for about the sixth time. You'll remember, Stu, if you listen to my episode on Canberra, growing up in Canberra, Canberra poetry scene. I've known this guy for 21 years and he's still putting up with my bullshit. It's a poem that at first seemed almost comical and whimsical to me at first, sort of with this whimsical flippantness until I realised that uh, it's only from Aeneas's perspective. Uh, he's swimming in the memory of his domestic bliss um, and his honey-scented wife. Uh, but w- what we don't hear from in this poem is Dido. We have no commentary on her marriage, um, unlike the, the details that Aeneas provides us on his. The more I pondered this sort of absence, the more a sort of sense of dread grew in me reading it for Dido. Her love for Aeneas could have been all-consuming for all we know. It could have been like the rock on which her whole life balanced for all we know. Um, But he's dismissed it straight away by saying it was never really real. It was never really sanctified. So Dido's love, whatever it may have been, is reduced to nothing by his words. So when I wrote this music, I thought of her at first, but there's nothing in the poem of her. She is a ghost. So that's Wednesday. I am going to make it to the end of the day without biting someone's head off or saying something stupid or quitting my job. I promise. I promise you. So after work yesterday, I took myself to the Rose and then Tom came down and joined me and we ended up watching the final. This was when we equalised with England. So I've been awake since like 3.30. Kind of woke up thinking about work, but also just feeling really sad about the Matildas. This is why I don't watch sport. Okay, I've got no barrier. I've got, I'm like a soft shell crab. (laughs) Just like shambling through the world, (laughs) feeling everything. But uh, when it became clear that we were definitely going to lose, I compulsively picked up my phone and compulsively checked my inbox. And I found this. All right, Alice, I have planned this basically not at all, but uh, <laughs> but, but it's, getting, it's getting late. 
uh, and I've got to fly to Atlanta tomorrow, and I'm not going to bring my mic, so I figured I would do it tonight. And I uh, that, and I just finished rereading uh, book four of the Aeneid. So I hope this is of some use to you, you delightful dancing Matilda. Welcome back, Matthew Buckley-Smith, host of My Sister Podcast, and really my favorite podcast, Slee Ricketts. Matthew has started referring to me as Matilda. This file is called Aeneas Thing for Matilda. And I think I fucking love it. So I have been told by my classicist friends that I am hard on Aeneas because in my mind, his treatment of Dido in the Aeneid is pretty awful, uh, pretty heartless. I mean, really, really fucks her over and doesn't seem to, I mean, doesn't only, not, not only doesn't suffer consequences as a result, but like actively enjoys rewards <laughs> for, for, for fucking her over. So Matthew is very much team Dido, as you will hear as we go through this episode. I'll come back to him a number of times, I expect. But for now, I just want you to hear this description of why Aeneas is grieving, because it is actually devastating. Troy gets burned down. Uh, Aeneas is the son of Anchises, who is a great warrior, and Venus, who is a goddess, uh, the Roman name for Aphrodite, goddess of love. And he uh, he gets woken up by the ghost of Hector, or, you know, maybe Morpheus in the, in the guise of Hector, um, saying like, hey man, the city's burning down, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Uh, and, um, he, so he gets up, he runs into battle, he goes, fights a bunch of Greeks. He, of course, you know, covers himself in glory as, as would be expected of a Roman hero. And then he, he goes to rescue his dad. His dad insists on staying there to die. And so he, he prepares to go back into battle when his wife, Creusa, <laughs> finally says like, uh, so what about your son and me? What's your plan for us? Because should we just go with you into battle? Or were you going to leave us in this burning house? What were you thinking? Uh, and at that, he says, oh, actually, I'm going to get my family out of this fucking city. So he puts and kisses his father on his back. He takes his son, uh, Eulus. Is, uh, a lot of the characters have two names. Eulus is one name. Um, uh, Ascanius is another for his son. He takes Ascanius' hand in his and... He tells his wife to walk behind them. There is this kind of a, a, a an oddly human moment for a poem with a lot of with a lot of very inhuman, stiff upper lip, Roman comportment. There is a a, a, a rather Greek and human moment when the city is very dark, and 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 Aeneas says when he went out suicidally just to fight Greeks, he wasn't afraid. He was just out for blood. But when he had his family with him and he was trying to escape, he was terrified. And suddenly he was, you know, every shadow, every noise spooked him. And so he thinks he hears the sound of feet. He thinks he, and his father thinks he sees the flash of bronze shields. And so he runs he, he, you know, carrying his father with his son at his side, they, they just run. They just run. And they're running through the city like crazy. They finally get out. It doesn't even occur to him to turn around until they're out of the city. At which point, he turns to check on his wife and she's gone. 
He goes running back through the city uh, like mad, trying desperately to find his wife. And he finally does find her, but she's already dead. And it's not her body that he finds, but her ghost. She greets him and says, it's too late. I'm never going to leave this place. Uh, go take our son and get out of here. Just, just go. But he tries to embrace her. He throws his arms around her three times and three times his arms pass through her. All right, it's Friday night. I have been racing around like a headless chook all day. But I have been thinking and thinking and thinking about this. And I have so many beautiful responses now from all of you. And yeah, I'm... I'm so moved and overwhelmed and uh, I really hope that I can, I really hope I can land this fucking plane. <laughs> I really hope I can. Just for today, I, I wanted to follow on from what Matthew just said there and say that now this next phrase, this next couple of stanzas means so much more to me. Even as the ghost of my precious wife passed through my clutching arms like mist, I swear on my soul I could taste her. Yeah, see, that's this is what you get when you actually read the source material. A whole bunch more depth. One more, um, yeah, just, just one more thing. I'm just going to leave it at this for today. I... I've been speaking to a couple of people who've listened to the first half of the episode already and just to people about what it's been like so far. And I was speaking to a friend about it this afternoon. And I, I mean, this is what it's like when you come to my house, right? We're having a completely normal uh, conversation. And then all of a sudden, I'm talking to you about my stupid poetry podcast and saying, oh, yes, and then this and then that. And actually, can I just show you this one poem? And I got my copy of the Bee Hut down from the shelf and I showed them the poem Lucky and, you know, sort of sat there nervously while they were reading it. And then, um, yeah, we sort of kept talking a little bit. And then after a little while, this friend was like, can I look at that poem again? And I was just like, yes, 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 you can. I, I felt like I'd won the fucking lottery <laughs> I just <laughs> it just made me so happy it made me so happy it's Saturday afternoon my interview for today got cancelled a couple of days ago so I knew I had Saturday all to myself I wish I could say that I'm having a good day the fact is I'm having a really terrible day. <laughs> um, don't do well with large tracts of blank time. It's just it's just one of those days. But I still get to do this. And I I need to go back quite a few days actually because over the last well since Tuesday I've got uh, maybe four or five different responses that I, I still need to work through. And so I'm going to go back to an email that I got 
Tuesday evening, I got an email from someone called Shona. The subject line of the email was, Dido and Aeneas, a classicist perspective. And I was like, oh shit, I'm about to be in trouble. And uh, I wasn't actually in trouble, but this email is is right on the border of what I can uh, comprehend. Shona is definitely too smart for me, but I'm going to try and keep up with her line of thinking here. She definitely understands all this stuff much, much better than I do. She wrote to say, My housemate Leela told me I cannot miss your latest episode on Dorothy Porter's Aeneas Remembers Domestic Bliss. Thank you, Leela. If you are the same Leela who is Leela from Adelaide, I'm guessing you are, uh, you're the best. You remain the best. Thank you so much. Shona goes on to say, I'm a classicist in training. I don't know. Based on this email, Shona, I think you are a classicist uh, no longer in training. Currently working on my master's thesis, provisional title, Patterns of Female Voice in Ovid's Heroides. Had to take a little breath there to make sure I pronounced that correctly. So Shona says that the Latin love elegist Ovid's Heroides 7 is a letter poem from the perspective of Dido to Aeneas. I wish we knew whether Dorothy had read Ovid's Heroides 7 because the second person addressed to Dido in her poem reads almost like a letter. I believe Dorothy picks up the most important issue which Ovid's Dido herself addresses. Who is to blame for Dido's death? Ovid understood that Aeneas's self-defense in the Aeneid was overly legalistic and focused on the validity of the marriage and where the vows took place, whereas Ovid's Dido argues that she saved Aeneas and his men, supported their recovery and rebuilding, and offered her city for his rule. Crucially, she explains that she faces the threat of neighboring states and has lost the confidence of her own people. She believes she is going to die so chooses to kill herself first. My own translation of the final lines of Herodes 7, Dido's self-written epitaph, are, This alone shall be the poem on my tomb's marble. Aeneas offered both the cause of death and the sword. Dido fell using her own hand. In light of these lines, Dorothy's Aeneas is a short-sighted, self-interested fool. It makes me wonder why she chose to write in his voice and not Dido's. And and this is the question. This is basically the same question that everyone has been asking me so far. What I think I will do at this point is give you Andrea's answer. I don't think that this is a definitive answer. I don't think it needs to be a definitive answer. And I don't think Andrea would necessarily say, well, because... I was Dorothy's partner and I lived with her and was there when this poem was written. I know what it was doing. But this is what she said. I don't want to grill you for too long, but this has been kind of the biggest question for me looking at this, is that there are there are two perspectives that you can tell this story from. You can tell it from Dido's, you can tell it from Aeneas's. Why do you think she chooses to speak through Aeneas? Because Aeneas is the wise one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we, we should say, um, in fact, he has a job to do, which is um, to get to what is now Rome and, and actually found the city. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really interesting question 
that um, a very interesting issue that she turns it around mm. and makes it about about the marriage. I mean, even if she hadn't, it would have to have been done. The actor in this, the active person in this is Aeneas. Um, it, it's not, I mean, of course, I mean, Dido passionately, passionately loves him. Mm. Um, but um, the person that's got the job to do, and, and, and traditionally, it is a traditional sort of male, old-fashioned traditional mm. male thing. Um, his, his, his is the most interesting voice here mm. because his is going, he's the one that is going to leave. He's got the job to do. And I think it's a really interesting thing that um, Rome's not mentioned. Jupiter's not mentioned. Mm. Um, Jupiter's the one that sort of, you know, separates him, sends him on his way. Mm. Um, that she turns it into a, a a really interesting meditation and it is a mature one on um on marriage mm. and affairs mm. and obsessions and 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 so on one of the wonderful things when you're a writer and you're writing in the first person as she is um is that you can actually take the role that you would always hope to be the actor it is Sunday afternoon, doing some outdoor recording. Sometimes when you do recording outside you get nice birds. Sometimes you get irritating birds. Sometimes you just get people on dirt bikes. I'm sure you are not listening to this because you want a daily update on my mental state. But it is a daily thing that I'm doing and today I feel pretty shitty. I did start reading the Aeneid. Oh my God, it's devastating. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to kind of outline it to Tom earlier today. He's like, oh, you're reading that? I'm like, yeah. Turns out it's actually really good. <laughs> so I've, I think I'm most of the way through book two. That's the bit where Aeneas, after being invited by Dido, basically tells the story of the sack of Troy. It's full on. It's really full on. I, I won't get into all that this afternoon. What I wanted to come to next was these next lines in the poem. Oh, the scorch of lost Trojan mornings in our rumpled bed with bread, figs, and yes, honey. I could taste honey as if every bee in Troy had made her phantom its swarming hive. I tell you what, that, that hits a lot harder once, once you've read a little bit of the source material. Yeah, like Aeneas is a refugee. His wife has been killed. He's escaped with his son and his dad and some of his men, but most of his friends have died. And when he gets to Carthage, he sees this mural on the wall with all these people that he used to know who are famous because they fought so hard, but also because they died in battle. And they basically get to Carthage with, with nothing. They go to Dido and they beg for sanctuary, essentially. And the thing is that Dido is also a refugee. She's a widow queen and she has built this city on her own. She's established Carthage. And she says, yeah, you, you can stay here. You can be Carthaginians if you want. 
I know what it's like. Like what I've gone through has, has taught me something about mercy and how to take care of people. So they start on really equal footing. In fact, Dido is actually, I mean, this is a silly way to put it, but she has kind of the upper hand or more status, I suppose. But yeah, this, this thing about the bees and the honey is significant on a couple of levels. When Aeneas sees Carthage and kind of starts to, I think he sees it from a distance, he compares it to a hive. He uses that imagery. I don't, I, I left the book in the car for some reason. <laughs> I brought the bee hut down here with me, but I didn't bring the Aeneid with me. I will, I will add those lines in. But then I also wanted to come to this foreword that Andrea wrote to the bee hut, where she talks specifically about bees as well. So she writes, every few weeks during 2004, when she was undergoing treatment for breast cancer, Dot would spend the weekend with her friend Robert on his farm. She loved the country air, the birds, the quiet, the glimpse of the ocean on the horizon. And she was fascinated by the old hut, not far from the house, which had become home to a colony of bees. The bee hut became a metaphor for these last years of her life. Overwhelmingly healthy years, I should add. She marveled at the bees as she had always marveled at life, but she was also aware of the danger amid the sweetness and beauty. I'll read this. This is the title poem from the Bee Hut for Robert Colvin. There is a dark place on my friend Robert's farm that thrums with the nectar smell of danger. A swarm of bees has taken over a dozing old shed and no one has the means or guts to move them. I think of slaughtered Mycenaean kings entombed in their brick hive, glittering as they lie golder than honey in the old blood dark. Entranced, my bare hand wants to plunge through a hole, now a buzzing lethal highway in the shed wall. I love the bee hut on my friend Robert's farm. I love the invisible mystery of its delicious industry. But do I love the lesson of my thraldom to the sweet dark things that can do me harm? It's not the kind of poem that you would expect from someone undergoing cancer treatment, I guess. Um, that probably sounds like a stupid thing to say. Like what would you expect somebody undergoing cancer treatment to write about? But I think about um, Kenyon's poems about uh, Donald Hall's cancer treatment. I think about the fact that often when you have an experience like that, you kind of, there's a zoom out, there's a sort of, there's a taking stock. And that poem to me, The Bee Hut, is more this thing of like, I still want danger. I still want the bad thing. <laughs> uh, and I haven't learned my lesson. Here's the bit I was thinking of earlier. So this is the Trojans looking at Carthage for the first time and looking at everybody building things and doing things, hard at work building the city. It was like the work which keeps the bees hard at their tasks about the flowering countryside 
as the sun shines in the calm of early summer, when they escort their new generation, now full grown, into the open air, or squeeze clear honey into bulging cells, packing them with sweet nectar. All is a ferment of activity, and the scent of honey rises with the perfume of time. It's Monday afternoon and I just got finished speaking with Felicity Plunkett. Is your week off to a good start? It is. I I just got to the end of a whole lot of things last week. So now I'm just having one of those days, which I really love where I'm just going through sending invoices, sorting out loose ends, finishing a whole lot of things. Feels really nice. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I want a day like that. I feel the opposite. I feel like I'm being eaten by moths at the moment. <laughs> just like just in terms of the amount of things. Yeah, just like a lot of little things that need a certain kind of attention that I don't want to give them. All I want to do is this. This is the only uh, thing I care about. Tell you what, if you ever get a chance to work with Felicity on anything for any reason, I I think you should do it. She seems fantastic. I decided to reach out to Felicity because I had this memory of when we spoke to each other, when I interviewed her last year, I think it was, that she had a connection with Dorothy Porter. And so I emailed her and said, hey, did I make that up or was that real? And she said, yeah, no, I was I was mentored by Dorothy along with a bunch of other writers. And it turns out they spent time together out at the Varuna Writers House, out in the Blue Mountains. And I loved hearing about what it was like to be mentored by Dorothy. You know, she she was the sort of ultimately respectful mentor in that she would be really honest, really, really honest about what a poem was doing, how well, it, how you know, whether she felt it was working well, all that kind of thing. So it was bracing, but I I just knew that it came from a place of real, a, a real commitment to helping us to get better and better. There was a there was a poem that I wrote one day, and I, you know, of course, in that setting where your mentor is there, and you've got the, you know, you've got all this time and this the luxury of being at Veruna and so on. Um, and I worked on this poem, and I was working on it for a few days, and then I I took it to her at one of the one of our sessions, and she read it, and um, in in a really really neutral, totally like just totally neutral sort of way, and oh, just totally the generosity of her being so open. She just said. Yeah, that's a sketch, isn't it? <laughs> oh, and she was right. And it was such a gift for me to understand that that was a sketch. And, you know, since I've I've kind of read so much about poetry and thought about it so much, and one of the things I love is um, something Carl Phillips says about, you know, poems have to have attention. And so many poems that you read don't really have attention. They are just a description of something, a scene yeah. or landscape or something, and they do actually need something else. Today I feel like I've done a 180. Today I'm like, am I overthinking this? Is this just, is this just a straightforward poem from the perspective of Aeneas saying, we've had our fun, it's been great, but I have to go. So some of the things that I really noticed about this were, were um, the the element of the ghost, and I think the idea that at a certain point in any life, whether whether you're Aeneas or whether you're not Aeneas, there are everybody that you meet, there has, you know, has has these connections and these networks and ties and history and even ghosts. And I just I, I just really felt it in terms of 
both the painful nature of triangular relationships, but also there's something very, you know, again, bracing and honest about saying a voice that says, we had a certain kind of relationship, now I have to go. And Aeneas, of course, um, you know, he was always torn between his kind of this this passionate love affair that he had with Dido, but he also is was he's always depicted, you know, in throughout the Aeneid as being very committed to the Trojan people and to having to having this divine mission that he has to go and do. Dido's already done her divine mission because she's already established Carthage. They've both come through a huge amount of trauma. He has literally come through a part of the trauma in the fact that she rescues him and accepts them into Carthage. So it's kind of like trauma piled on trauma, and yet he still has this thing that he has to go and do. And I feel like there's something quite powerful about the voice that says, look, we had our time, and that was great, but now I'm going to go and do something else. And I think the other the other ghost in this poem or the other shadow in this poem is that I guess most of the thing that most of us would know about um, Dido and Aeneas is what happened to Dido subsequently. And that's not really in this poem. Yeah, so, it's dismissed. Such yeah. threats. So to kind of come back, I think, you know, because what Dido then becomes, you know, I mean, she's described as struck down by her own hand, but she climbs onto her own funeral pyre and it's a very vengeful death. Um, she takes her own life, but it's also very much constructed in terms of she uses the word vengeance and revenge in in the in in the Aeneid. I love the bravery of Dot's work. She didn't. <laughs> there are so many things in it, like so many times when I've been reading her work that I just I just laugh because it's so brave and bold and bracing. I think oh, one completely. Of my, um, I was just <laughs> just looking at Crete. This just oh, yeah. before we came on. I mean, there's a poem in here that is just called. I think it's just called "Gorgeous Breasts." Like that's yeah. the title of the poem. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that's like that. And actually, um, I, I was actually just looking for my copy of Crete before, and I did have it in my hand two days ago, but I can't find it now. But I actually think this poem is is also quite linked. You can find if you if you really want to get into the like you know mapping of um, what you know Dot wrote about in the second last stanza when she gets back to to flood my my drought mouth in honey. You know, to me that leads back that I can immediately hear two other poems in that. One of them is Drought Sonnet in in Crete. Um, and then the, as for flood, you know, there's that great, um, there's that great line in um the monkey's mask, what flash floods my cunt, you know, <laughs> as, a, as an exclamation. And I mean, that's just, yeah, that one's hard to forget. Yeah, hear both of those lines in there. Actually, one of my one of my favorites in the monkey's mask is where um the, the detective goes along to, to a poetry reading, which sounds like it's somewhere like glee books, you know, imaginative glee books. And um, there's someone reading a poem. <laughs> she says something like, it's a poem about an old grandfather's hat. And she says at a certain point, oh, this poem is going on forever. You know, unlike the grandfather, you know, lucky old man, he, he's, he must be dead. <laughs> I've been looking back at Crete this morning, which is Porter's collection from the early 90s. And one of the things that is immediately noticeable looking at at this collection is that she just read everything all the time um there are so many epigraphs from so many different sources and you know i've been to her house now and i saw all the 
books on the top shelf, you know, I saw her copy of the Aeneid. I know she's read all this stuff. So there is no way this poem is written in ignorance of the myth. She definitely knew about all these resonances. It's just a question of how is she playing with them? So Felicity mentioned that poem, Drought Sonnet, and this one has the epigraph after Lorca's Sonnets of Dark Love. The parched weave of my shirt soaks up your hand, clothes, toes, and throat. Why am I this thirsty? Every night I sniff over the wilting stretch of my own hot skin. Your mouth falls so generously on my mouth of sand. My tongue follows mirage after mirage along the wet of your lips. The next stop is Freeman Street. At this stop, the doors will open on the right-hand side. Hopefully I, my sound is all right. Sorry about the huge microphone in my face there. This is my conversation from yesterday with Beck Jesson. Beck is a poet who lives up in Brisbane and who very nearly wrote her thesis on Dorothy Porter before deciding to write about Pam Brown and Kerry Glastonbury. And Beck said she is about a month off finishing, so I can't believe she actually made the time to speak with me. This is my Mark Ford moment. Finally, my poetry podcast is about the erotic. Why was she important to you in the first place? Like what kind of attracted you to her? I like I still remember finding the monkey's mask in a like secondhand bookshop in Newtown in Sydney how old was I I think I was like 19 or 20 I had like just come out I had my first girlfriend and it was like this book was tucked away in the like you know gay and lesbian section so it was like this Which like is always so stressful to go and stand in the game. I know, right? section. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then you're like really drawing attention to yourself. And I remember it was like at the front of a bookshop as well. So it was just kind of like loitering near this shelf, like trying to look, but like not look too conspicuous. Um <laughs> which didn't work of course but then yeah I picked up this book and I remember like I remember the cover which I think must have been like from the movie version yeah with Susie Porter like stretched out on the bed yeah I was like oh wow look at like yeah I was just kind of immediately drawn and then started reading a few lines and was like oh my god like I really hadn't read very much poetry before that like contemporary poetry like I hadn't read any to be honest um it was the first time like seeing myself kind of in someone else's words and like some of his experiences like um you know the way Porter writes about the working class and just writing so openly about being a lesbian like that was such a revelation to me at that age I mean, yeah, I want to talk to you about that for, for half an hour, but I will yeah. try to focus on this poem because <laughs> I had experiences like that too, but much more sort of clandestine. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll try to focus on the poem. So this is this is a poem about a straight relationship. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So what do you make of that? Yeah, I think when I first, like I first read it, and didn't like didn't have any of that reference you know background material about what it was about I did read it like as a lesbian poem like it just kind of brought that perspective to it there and, is definitely yeah the the erotic imagery in it 
there is something sort of queer about it. Yeah. The she's constantly uses honey as yeah. like a sex thing. Yeah. Yeah. Really <laughs> not just here, but in like everywhere. Yeah, yeah. 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 In, in lots of her poems. Yeah. So I think probably just like my bias as like a reader and kind of knowing Porter's poetry. Um, but not knowing the like subject matter of his poem and but I you know I did read it kind of with a lesbian context at first mm-hmm. I don't know like I, I've never read like certainly not an Australian poet who kind of writes the erotic like so well and like in such a way that it's like quite obvious but not in a like not in a crass way if that makes sense like she I don't know if it's just like a way that she like all of and I think it is in the imagery. I think you're totally right about the eroticism. The Monkey's Mask, I reread it uh, about a couple of months ago because I was trying to put together this episode about sex in poetry mm-hmm. and I was thinking about whether it's effective or not in that way and, you know, it's the thing about it is it's fearlessness, right? Like yeah. it should be so cringeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow it isn't. Yeah. Somehow it isn't. And yeah, I suppose there are lines here that kind of like sort of skirt that. Yeah. Flood my drought mouth in honey or poison. Yes. Could quite easily not land. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so what do you make of Aeneas then? Because he yeah. is essentially in this poem, at least at this point in the month, like 22 days into staring at this thing. Mm-hmm. I think I hate him. <laughs> Interesting take. Well, you've been looking at the poem a long time. A long time, possibly too long. But like, yeah. what do you make of his move here, what he's saying and what he's doing? I feel like I'm I'm struggling like trying to resist the temptation to just make him the bad guy, yeah. you know, like yeah. how dare he, he's breaking Dido's heart kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah. I guess, you know, Porter really knew her Greek myth like much, much yeah. better than, I mean, I yeah. really just started sort of come to coming to it through this poem. But like Aeneas has got shit to do. He's got an important mission. Yeah, yeah. So maybe <laughs> like maybe we cut him some slack and it's like, okay, like, you had to go off and do these really huge, important, life-changing, world-changing things, like, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. Maybe you can't yeah. just hang around in bed <laughs> with Dido. Okay, so I am, I'm quite a bit further into the Aeneid now. I don't, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It's nobody's motivation is their own. Is the thing like the gods are just manipulating everybody in this story? I'm gonna come to that. I've got to. I've got to come back to all this amazing stuff that Matthew said. and But the thing is that I have responses banking up now to this poem. And I didn't include yet a response, two responses that I got earlier in the week from some very dedicated listeners. So I'm going to respond to them now, today, Wednesday, the 23rd of August. Alice Allen. Hi, this is Sarah Robb. We've corresponded before. I'm a listener to you both on Poetry Says and on Sleeve Rickets, where you're often a guest of Matthew Buckley Smith. I love this piece that you've done on Dido and Aeneas. 
I love the introduction to Dorothy Porter and wonder if she's a relation to Peter Porter, whose book of poems, The Rest of the Flight, is on my shelf and is pretty well thumbed. But most of all, I love the story of Dido and what you've done with it. It takes your recent conversation with Brian on slea rickets and gives it a, a perhaps much needed historic mythic context. Okay, so that conversation with Brian is a mix of really ill-advised hot takes on my part and some sort of serious but mostly hilarious uh, discussions of relationships between men and women. And so the idea of it having a mythic context is just the best thing in the world. <laughs> Thank you for that, Zara. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that Peter Porter is any relation to Dorothy Porter. I know nothing about Peter Porter. I, I don't think I've read a line of Peter Porter, um, but I should. I should. Zara asked a really good question by email to follow up on this. She says, what's the difference between a loving marriage and a love affair, however passionate? Before I get to that, let's bring in the other listener question that I had from earlier in the week. Hi, Alice. This is Ethan McGuire. Um, just a few observations or questions I had. So Ethan had a couple of really good observations, one of which was that for a lot of the Aeneid, he sees the female characters as having more power than the men. And I, I do agree with that because really it's Venus, Aeneas's mum, who's doing all this manipulating. And it's Juno, the, the queen of the gods, who is trying to basically destroy Aeneas and to protect and to keep Carthage safe. And as I was saying a couple of days ago, Dido is a, she's a powerful queen. She just gets taken down by this situation. The other thing that Ethan pointed to was this idea of pious Aeneas. That's how he's described. He's, he's driven by his duty, essentially. And this helps a little with this word that's been bugging me in the first few lines. Could she be using spouse as sort of a more quote-unquote solid word? A word that's not as beautiful, yet it represents duty more? And then the other thought I had was there's this extra layer, um, as long as I'm remembering this correctly, that essentially the gods tricked Dido and Aeneas into to where Dido thought they were married, but Aeneas thought they were not married. And it all has to do with this cave scene in the Aeneid, which maybe you've read by this point. I have. I just read that bit last night. <laughs> we were lying there and Tom was like, I can't believe you're reading the Aeneid while I'm looking at car ads on my phone. <laughs> so these are all really good questions and huge questions. And what I'm going to do instead of attempting to answer them myself is to bring you back to Andrea and share something else that she said. Because this is an age old thing mm. of, um, you know, affairs and marriage and, and, and so on. Yeah, that flare of attraction and then you get to the other side of it. Yeah. yeah. And, and what so often happens is that people mistake that, I mean, I call it the, you know, the whiz-bang um, flare for something that is actually enduring. And in fact, you know, whiz-bang can, and you see this in a lot of Dorothy's poetry actually, um, the whiz-bang, can last for 
so long, like months, that you're actually convinced that this can go on forever, which is ludicrous, really, because yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, doesn't. it doesn't. And it's also not what you need. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. If we think about, um, poets have often thought that in order to write the poetry, they need to, you know, take drugs, um, have a lot of sex, be dissolute in order to actually produce fabulous poetry. And the fact is that writing is done in isolation and it requires patience. And in fact, life can often interrupt what you, you want to do on, on the page. So, and the interesting thing with Dot, always, it's wonderful actually, she saved always her most excited self her most imaginative self, her best self in, in some ways, for the poetry. And there were times that, you know, we'd be sitting here on, this, on the couch and she'd be in her tracky pants and we'd be watching television or not. And, and I'd, I'd turn around to her and I'd say, look, could I have a little bit more of the poetry, please? <laughs> so, uh, uh, um, oh, for sure. Because I listen back to this so many times, making the episode, the things that people say become, uh, they get lodged in my brain. And I just love the way that Andrea says, could I have a little bit more of the poet, please? <laughs> it's so good. It's Thursday. I am being a gigantic baby about all the things I have to do. I don't want to do any of them. I feel like throwing a tantrum. I am going to do them, but first of all, I am going to do this. I'm going to read the next two stanzas of the poem. Of course I will miss you, but release us both from this futile tar pit and accept we were never married. Yes, my divided heart rears for you, mourning already the smell of your flushed skin and the sting of your green fire eyes, but we were never married. I guess that's a stanza in one line. I just finished book four of the Aeneid last night and I was saying to Beck how I sort of hate Aeneas at the same time I do understand now what he's up against. When he makes this speech to Dido he, he does invoke the fact that they're not properly married at least from his perspective even though Dido after the incident in the cave which is not, not fully detailed I think we can assume that what happened was that they had sex and she was like sweet <laughs> he's fully committed to me now and he was like that was fun <laughs> anyway she thinks they're married he doesn't he gets found out that he's planning to leave Dido confronts him and then he presents her with this litany of reasons why he has to go and one of them, the one that I've underlined here, is where he says, My son, Ascanius, also serves as a warning to me. I think of his dear self and of the wrong which I do him in defrauding him of his Italian kingdom, where fate has given him his lands. He's got a duty to his son. And he's got a duty to his people. All his people are just hanging out in Carthage, I guess sort of wondering when is Aeneas going to stop 
rolling around in bed with Dido so we can found the place where we're going to live? Or are we just hanging out here forever? Like, what's the plan? And I get all that. And yet I still, I can't forget. I can't get away from Dido's perspective. And I can't forget what's been done to her. She has pledged never to marry another man, never to love another man. Um, she pledged this to the ashes of Sakias, her husband, because she loved him so much. And uh, she never had a child. She longed for a child, but she never had one. And so what Venus does is she sends her son, Amor, Eros, Cupid, to infect Dido with love for Aeneas but the way she does it is she sends him in the, she she whisks away Aeneas's son her grandson I guess um, Ascanius Eulus and she sends Amor in the guise of Ascanius like in the guise of this little boy and so he goes and he's because he's sort of he's a little boy and there's not the same kind of you know questions of propriety uh, Dido picks him up and sets him in her lap and hugs him and kisses him and cuddles him. And she's, you know, she's always wanted a fucking kid. And he's an adorable little boy and his mother is dead. And her heart, she just, her heart melts for him. But it's not really him. It's a fucking God in disguise. And the God is now, you know, because he's now right up in her lap, on her breast, in her mouth, he infects her with love for Aeneas. And all of this is only to guarantee Aeneas safe harbor there. Like it's purely mercenary because Venus wants to make sure her son is safe. Dido is aching with love for Aeneas at this point. There's actually like, I think like a, a pretty convincing description of her love. And the moment that really leapt out at me this most recent time was after Aeneas, so Aeneas sits on a couch when he's telling the story of the fall of Troy and then he goes to bed. And after he's gone to bed, she crawls up on the couch and presses her face into it and smells his smell and feels the indentation that his body left uh, and aches for him. And that just felt so like painfully, physically true to life. Like that is the, that's like infatuation. That's like deadly, deadly infatuation. That's falling in love and just having that pain in needing somebody, aching for somebody. Allô? Hmm? Vanny, c'est Céline. Ah. Comment ça va? Ça va bien. Et toi? <laughs> Il m'est arrivé quelque chose d'incroyable. Uh, I've been working on my English recently. Will you want to talk in English just for laughs? Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's a good idea. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for lunch today. I'm sorry. I, I met a guy on the train and... I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. Was he's Austrian? He's from there? No, 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 no. He's passing through here too. He's American. He's going back home tomorrow morning. Why'd you get off the train with him? Well, he convinced me. I mean, actually, I was, <laughs> I was ready to get off the train with him after talking to him a short while. He was so sweet. I couldn't help it. We were in the launch car, and he began to talk about him as a little boy seeing his great-grandmother's ghost. I think that's when I fell for him. 
Just the idea of this little boy with all those beautiful dreams. He trapped me. Mm-hmm. Julie Delphi. I mean, what what can I say? Okay, it's Friday morning. I'm going to keep this short because I'm feeling particularly crazy today. I give myself eight crazies out of ten, actually. Instead, I think we should hear from Anna, who sent me this beautiful note a couple of days ago. Hi, Alice. It's Anna here, uh, just weighing in on the long reading uh, that you've invited us listeners to weigh in on. I just have a whole new appreciation for your skills as a podcaster. Trying to record, uh, trying to organize my thoughts and record them is just, it's really hard. (laughs) I've got notes all over the place and it's just, it just looks like soup anyway. That's how you know you're doing it right, Anna. That's what it feels like. So I was interested that Dorothy Porter chose to write this poem from Aeneas's perspective. And now this might be a bit of a stretch, but I was just thinking how in a way that's similar to what Virgil did by using the same format as the Iliad and the Odyssey to tell the story of the Trojans instead of the Greeks. Um, So telling the story from the other side, from the less familiar side. And then something else I wanted to just say about the second to last stanza. When I was first reading through the poem, as as well as when I heard uh, Andrea Goldsmith read it out, which was wonderful, by the way, um, is when they come, when um, you come to the word poison in here, where it, it says to flood my drought mouth in honey or poison. And that's a really surprising word in, in the poem. And I was wondering, you know, why, why is that there? Where, where does that come from? And I thought maybe at first that he was saying that Dido's ghost, if she followed him, would perhaps fill him with poison. But looking at it more, I think maybe it refers more to the ghost of his dead wife, Crusa, as she is clearly haunting him. And he's, I think, expecting her to continue haunting him through, as he says, his um, his next awful war and next sacked city. And that I think he uses this term to try to make his point that He's leaving Dido. He's making this choice not to choose something more pleasurable than what they have. He's not making uh, this choice out of a kind of selfishness. He's not, uh, you know, making that mistake. He's choosing to accept his fate and commit to his responsibilities along the way, even though it's it brings both both good and bad. Um, what he's choosing is not all honey. It's, uh, you know, the commitment to uh, a higher purpose. And that kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, marriage vows. You know, we say for better or worse, richer or poorer, and sickness and health. And um, I'm wondering if this might be where, you know, that bit of irony in the phrase domestic bliss comes in that you were talking about. It's, as I said, it's, it's not all honey. I'd be really curious to know why Dorothy Porter wrote this. It was really touching to hear Andrea Goldsmith talk about when she first read the poem, and it was just really beautiful to hear her read it out. I do wonder again about what she first thought when she read it. <laughs> I can imagine if my partner had left this poem for me to, to read, uh, I might have been a bit alarmed. Um, would certainly have some questions, uh, but from what I can tell, it doesn't seem to be the case that uh, Porter meant any kind of personal comment by the poem. I'm at the airport. <laughs> oh man. 
um, whenever I bring my recording gear with me, whenever I travel. Okay, because of the guy that Tom is, he made me a Pelican case to keep my Zoom H6 in. And <laughs> it, it looks a lot like I'm a terrorist. And I do, the bag always gets pulled to the side and then the very lovely man whose job it is to look through people's bags is like, what is in this bag, ma'am? And I'm like, oh, it's a, it's, it's a recording gear. I'm a podcaster. I make podcasts about poetry. I'm at the Jetstar Terminal. It's Saturday afternoon. I can't quite remember how many levels of hell there are but the Melbourne Jetstar Terminal might be, I think there's nine, and I think the Jetstar Terminal might be like seven. I have had a strategic glass of airport rosé. It cost $15. It was actually pretty decent. And you know, there, there comes a point, as Nigella says, there comes a point where a girl who is waking up for no reason at 3.30 a.m. in the morning must resort to such things because nothing else is working and uh, it's not the same as day drinking it's a different thing I mean imagine working at an airport like this whole place fills me with fear and anxiety and like people work here people come here and this is their this is their office oh man what I've been trying to address for the last couple of days and I've recorded one attempt at this and I, I didn't like it at all so I'm trying again today. I really want to address this Greek myth thing. I said at the start that poems that invoke Greek myth feel like homework to me or felt like homework to me and I resisted them and I would roll my eyes and think, oh, why are you bothering to bring that up again? Nobody knows what you're referring to for God's sake. And I think about poets like Petra White and L.K. Holt, who do this really effectively. I read, um, I read a collection by a UK poet called Fiona Benson, called Ephemeron, um, which is all about, I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong, but Pasiphae, who uh, had the, this whole thing went down with the Minotaur, I don't even want to get into. but. It was really, really affecting. It was really affecting. That book was one of the, the texts that kind of opened the door to me to this kind of stuff because the way she wrote about it was just so, it felt so honest and visceral and so not like showing off knowledge of Greek myth and I know all these references that you don't know. It just felt very direct and very like, this is what this was and this is what this felt like and it started to open my mind to it but the other thing that did that and Matthew this is where you need to skip forward two minutes I'll say was the poetry of Matthew Buckley Smith the thing that's infuriating about Matthew what I've come to realize over the last little while is I've become a better podcaster than I ever was a poet Matthew is really excellent at both and it's it, it's awful it's awful to have a friend like this he has this poem called another Achilles it's a long poem 
I read it in his manuscript. It's also online, I will link to it. And at first I didn't quite know what it was. I didn't quite know what it was doing. I could see there was a lot of skill and a lot of craft there, which there is in all of his poems, but uh, I didn't, it didn't quite land with me. And then through listening to him, he's referenced this myth a couple of times on his podcast, like just in passing, I came to understand just enough about the story of Achilles that I went back and reread this poem and I was like, holy shit, this poem's amazing. This is like a, this is a gut punch of a poem. So I guess what I'm saying is it's worth it to do the homework, which I hate myself for saying because I remember myself from a month ago, the girl who was like, you know, who cares essentially? Little Miss, who cares? Why would I bother? I've got enough to do. I've got enough reading to do. But it turns out it actually, it, 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 pay, it pays off. I don't know, this is um, Airport Rosé Alice signing off for Saturday afternoon. Probably none of that is usable because there is too much background noise. Thanks for listening, like and subscribe. JQ513 to Sydney, now boarding at gate 42. Thank you. When was the last time you said Alice Rosé exit road? Are you willing to April to see for today? We are Sunday morning at Lou's house. Launch preparations are in full swing. I think it's going to be a really excellent night. Apparently it is sold out, which is not something that really happens with book launches. I did wake up this morning to a my first poetry rejection email in a very long time. Not because I've been having things accepted, but because I haven't sent anything out in about a year. And this is the first thing I sent out in about a year, and it came back. And it would be very silly to be sitting around making this a, a referendum on my abilities uh, the way I spend my time, my focus in life, um, my talent and my worth as a person. That would be pretty stupid. One of the things I haven't addressed fully, but I have been thinking about since I started this, is Porter's simplicity, Porter's directness. What seems to me like a really conscious decision to always be as simple and direct as possible. And I had a little exchange with Liam Fernie about this and he made some really good points and he was kind enough to put this together for me. Hey Alice, I'm not sure if this is in time or, um, and I have concerns over my value of saying anything about Dorothy Porter. She's not a poet I necessarily read a lot or know a lot about, um, though she was, and I think this is probably very true of a number of poets, particularly those who sort of came up in the in the 90s. She was important to me in that, you know, when I was at high school, Dorothy Porter's books were the only ones in, like, the uh, Brisbane City Council libraries and those sorts of things. And I can remember 
uh, getting Arkanarton out from the library. And that book meaning a lot to me. Uh, I really enjoyed Monkey's Mask when it came out, and it certainly, um, uh, perhaps <laughs> misleadingly, the film's success, you know, made poetry look like a, a sustainable career. Uh, the one thing I would say about Porter is I think, you know, and this isn't this isn't Porter's fault. Um, I think her work is 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 of a very very high standard, but I feel like it's been a little bit of a negative impact on some uh, on Australian poetry um, more broadly. I'd say because one of her stock trades was you know deceptive simplicity or elegant simplicity, which looks very easy to do. I mean, that's that's part of the trick. That's part of the style. But in reality, um, you know, imitating it, there's always intangibles that I think are very hard to, to capture. And the simplicity probably elides, you know, an incredible amount of poetic learning and poetic skill and poetic practice on Porter's behalf. Uh, and without that same investment, you're just going to get, rather than elegantly simple verse, you just get simple verse. And... Similarly, I think, um, you know, the monkey's mask made verse novels look very easy to do when I think, in fact, they're quite difficult. But what it did provide was a bit of a a beginner's template. Um, Anyway, I hope this doesn't um, stick in the craw of too many uh, Dot Porter fans. I do think she's, um, you know, a wonderful contributor and figure to to Australian poetry. Um, And, you know, I'm not a, a, a big current reader of her or you know, any kind of scholar of her work. So, you know, take it all with, um, take it all with a grain of salt. I'm home now. It was a really great night. Really, really great. We sold out of books and I think everybody had a really, really good time. And I walked in the door and the house was so clean. Tom has been beavering away in here and I feel so lucky and so, so taken care of. I don't know if you've noticed at this point in the episode, but I'm really good at complaining And I'm really good at finding reasons why everything's going to go wrong. It's like a special skill that I have. And he puts up with all that and lets me spin around in circles for as long as it's going to take me. And then he's, he's just there, you know, waiting. I'm super fucking lucky. Lou and I did have a bit of a chat about the poem. There was so much going on, I really didn't feel like dragging out my recording gear and being like, let's talk about the poem for my podcast. Um, But we did kind of chat about it, and she has picked up something that I've also been coming to see over the last few days, which is that as the poem comes to its conclusion, there is something in the tone which makes me think that Aeneas truly feels as devastated as Dido does, and your ghost, such threats, will keep its roost and never come looking for me through my next awful war, next sacked city to flood my drought mouth in honey or poison. It sounds like somebody at the point in an argument where they're saying, you feel terrible, I feel terrible. 
you think this is hard for you? The only thing I can think of to try to express this is to just play you this little clip. I'm not going to tell you what show it's from because I don't want to spoil the show for you. But when you get to this part, you'll recognize it. This is kind of what I mean. Right, what the fuck was I thinking? Like I was going to be in a relationship? I'm a fucking, I'm a fucking psycho. That's why. That's why I'm good at what I do. That's how I operate. I am the best because I didn't have any of this fucking bullshit, right? I could, I could focus and I could concentrate and I had a routine and, and I had fucking cell reception. It's now Tuesday. I'm just catching up. Catching up on the various inboxes. Oh my God. You know what I want to say to my boss right now? We were never married. Okay. <laughs> we were never married. Oh my God. Um, I'm not 100% sure that it's clear what happened over the last few days, but I went to Sydney to launch Lou's book, just for the record. And it was, it was fucking fabulous. And I'm really glad. And I really wish I was still in Sydney and not here working. If you think that Lou and I are totally off base with that reading, with us thinking that Aeneas is as devastated as Dido, then you'll appreciate these thoughts from Matthew that I really wanted to include in these last couple of days that I have left to think about this poem. <laughs> Virgil describes him like racking his brains, trying to think of all the different, like, what can I tell her? What possible reason could I give her? What argument could I make to, to like get her to understand that I've got to leave now? And uh, the answer is none. The answer is uh, rumor spreads that he's going to be leaving and eventually Dido hears about it and she goes to him. And it's sort of heartbreaking. Like she, she says like, are you leaving because you need to go somewhere else or are you leaving just to get away from me? And the answer he gives her is the speech that Dorothy Porter's poem is based on or is sort of, you know, riffing on. Now, Dorothy Porter's account is all, you know, hey, I, you know, God, my, I love my wife and, and she was really, she's my true love and not you. And... I can't get over her. I feel for you, and I still uh, have lust for you. But, but I've got we, you know, we got to we got to split up and go easy on me. It's pretty. It's a pretty shitty speech. The actual speech Aeneas gives is so much shittier. Is like, is like breathtakingly shitty. So, so Aeneas, like, instead of picking one of his terrible arguments or one of his, you know, excuses, he just he just picks all of them. He says like, oh, uh, I, I wasn't sneaking away. I, I was going to tell you. I just hadn't told you yet. I was fine waiting for the right time. He actually says like to his men, he's like, well, I'll find the, a good time to tell her. And he, he, this is the first thing he says to her. He's like, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't going to sneak out. I was going to tell you. And he says like, but technically I didn't ever, I wasn't actually married to you because I didn't do the, the, the torch thing that you have at a wedding. Like we didn't do all the technical wedding stuff. So like. What are you even that mad about? And then he says, the thing he says, that, and this is what Porter's poem is picking up on, the most heart-shredding thing he says is like, hey, I, I, the fates won't let me stay here, right? We, we know that. The fates aren't going to let me stay here. But he says, if they gave me my druthers, if they let me have my choice of how to live, I still wouldn't stay here. I would go back to Troy and rebuild it. 
so it's Wednesday, 30th of August. I'm sure it will surprise absolutely no one that I am sick in bed now. I guess that's what you get. That's what you get. What I want to say at the end here is that we've really exploded this poem. And I'm so grateful to everybody who contributed and so, so aware that I didn't get to use everything that everyone sent. We've looked at it from all of its angles. We've complicated it. But really, I think that the poem is pretty straightforward. It is direct, like Porter always is. And when it comes back to its refrain and it ends... We were never married, Dido. Believe me, I'm sad too. But you can't sweeten me and I can't comfort you. I think it is just that straightforward. Aeneas is sad. He would like Dido to sweeten him. He would like to comfort her, but he can't. It's that simple. It's that devastating. And I think the variety of responses that everyone has had to this poem just shows the fact that we all feel very differently about his position, about Aeneas's position. For some of us, he's wise and dutiful and he's making the hard but good choice. And for others, he's being basically callous. He's hard to relate to. He's maybe even a little opaque. This Aeneas, I don't know that I ever get him. In a way, like it sounds like a speech imagined by an angry Dido. Like it's almost like this is like when Dido gets sarcastic with Aeneas talking about like, oh, I'm sure Mercury was so worried about your bad dreams and whether you're going to stay around. Like it, I, I feel like this is almost like a speech Aeneas gives in Dido's sarcastic rendering. Like, like this is the speech Dido sarcastically recites to her sister summarizing Aeneas's speech. I think that's all I got to say about this. Aeneas remembers domestic bliss. That is a funny title. You know what? That's a weird title. Because like there's that's a ton of what's going on in the poem, but it doesn't seem to be what he's doing at all. It seems like he's He's just trying to get Dido off the phone. Yeah, I totally know that one. I didn't think too hard about this poem before I chose it. I didn't think too hard about Speed of Pastoral before I chose that poem for last year. But what initially attracted me to it is that while I have sometimes been the Aeneas in a situation, most often I'm Dido. I get overly attached, I get overly invested, overly committed. I imagine there is more in a given situation than there actually is. And when I look at this poem, I relive the sting of the conversations when I've been told, in so many words, we were never married. And I think there's something in me that kind of enjoys that sensation. It's a bit like pressing a bruise. There is something kind of sweet, bittersweet about reliving it. How I felt in those moments. 
you know, those situations have really hurt. And they sit with me. But spending a whole month thinking about this from so many different angles. I think it softened me on it a little. And I think, you know, people are complex. It would be easy if there was a bad guy. I love you. It'll pass. But I'm really, I'm really not sure. Can I read the poem? Yeah, please. Aeneas remembers domestic bliss. We were never married, Dido. Cease weeping. Let me leave and agree we both knew real spouses. Even as the ghost of my precious wife passed through my clutching arms like mist, I swear on my soul I could taste her. Oh, the scorch of lost Trojan mornings in our rumpled beard with bread, figs and yes, honey. I could taste honey as if every bee in Troy had made her phantom its swarming hive. Of course, I will miss you, but release us both from this futile tar pit and accept we were never married. Yes, my divided heart rears for you, mourning already the smell of your flushed skin and the sting of your green fire eyes. But we were never married and your ghost, such threats, will keep its roost and never come looking for me through my next awful war, next sacked city, to flood my drought mouth in honey or poison. We were never married, Dido. Believe me, I'm sad too that you can't sweeten me and I can't comfort you. Right, you are a sentimentalist. Here where you are. I don't know what you're talking about. What you just did for Laszlo, that fairy tale you invented to send Ilsa away with him. I know a little about women, my friend. She went, but she knew you were lying. Anyway, thanks for helping me out. I suppose you know this isn't going to be very pleasant for either of us, especially for you. I'll have to arrest you, of course. As soon as the plane goes, Louis. August 31st, still in bed, still feeling pretty second rate, but dad is arriving tomorrow. I've been thinking about the fact that when we were little, dad always made sure that we had lots of books on tape and he took us out to the Queanbeyan Library, even though it was way out of the way because it had the best selection. And I remembered that one of the tapes that we used to listen to was a kid's version of the Odyssey. So I guess a lot of this has been in there from the start. I was also wondering whether the books on tape thing was related to the podcast thing. I guess I'll take that up with my therapist. There is just one more thing that I want to do before I put this up. I want to read you my favorite poem 
which after this month, I feel even closer to. I feel like this poem is actually something like a postscript to Aeneas Remembers Domestic Bliss. Now, as I said, I am a little bit um, out of it, but let me see if I can do it without looking at the book. Lucky for Andy. There's a damp melancholy in Tang poetry that smudges the lovely jade precision. I love Walt Whitman's spunky company. <laughs> Fuck, I'm already losing it. <laughs> I love Walt Whitman's spunky company. But under his bardic whistling, I can hear his lonely heart howling at the turned back of some deaf rough trade. So many poets starve in the cold fairy spaces between their frostbitten ears. How lucky I am to hear you, darling, coming up the stairs to smell the coffee floating ahead of you like my favourite incense. Oh, I really didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> it is kind of like magic. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. See ya.